Rufus Reed, one of today's premier bassists on the international jazz scene, with his reputation firmly established in the education arena, now adds composition to his vitae. Rufus participated in the BMI Jazz Composers Workshop for five years, which has empowered him to move more deeply into the composing arena. He has written for string orchestra, jazz ensembles large and small, concert band, double bass ensemble pieces, and a solo bass composition. Mass Transit, Rufus's three-movement symphony orchestra composition, was premiered in 2011. Also premiered that year was the orchestral arrangement of Reed's Caress the Thought with soloist Joe Guastafesti, the retired principal bassist of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Reed composes Caress the Thought as a solo piece for bass virtuoso Diana Gannett, who has performed it several times and recorded it on her 2015 CD Artemis in the Oak Grove with pianist Ellen Rowe. Quiet Pride, a five-movement work for large jazz ensemble inspired by the sculptures of the artist Elizabeth Catlett, was premiered in 2012 at the Shaw Center for the Performing Arts in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This special event has Elizabeth's gorgeous artwork in residence during this time. This suite of music was recorded by hand-picked large ensemble including two French horn and vocals conducted by Dennis Mackerel, Quiet Pride, the Elizabeth Catlett Project was released to rave reviews by the Motema Music in February of 2014. The CD received two nominations for the 57th Grammy Awards, Best Large Jazz Ensemble and Best Instrumental Composition for Recognition, the first movement of this suite. Rufus continues to present this music in universities with Catlett's work on view. He also presents the professional large ensemble whenever possible, as at the David Rubenstein Atrium at Lincoln Center, New York City in November of 2014, and at the Jazz Standard in New York City, February of 2015. Rufus is equally known as an exceptional educator. Dr. Martin Crivet and Ree created the Jazz Studies and Performance Program at William Patterson University. Ree retired for 20 years, but continues to teach conducting master classes, workshops, and residencies all over the world. Rufus's book, The Evolving Bassist, published since 1974, continues to be recognized as the industry standard as the definitive bass method. January 2000, the book's Millennium Edition was published. In December of 2003, The Evolving Bassist DVD was released. This two-and-a-half-hour DVD also offers a concert view featuring Mulgrew Miller and Lewis Nash. Rufus Reed's major professional career began in Chicago and continues since 1976 in New York City. He has toured and recorded with Eddie Harris, Nancy Wilson, Harold Land, Bobby Hutcherson, Lee Konitz, the Thad Jones and Mel Lewis Jazz Orchestra, Dexter Gordon, J.J. Johnson, Art Farmer, Stan Getz, Kenny Burrell, Kenny Barron, and countless others. He continues to enjoy associations with Tim Higgins, Bob Mincer, Frank West, Marvin Stamm, and Benny Golson. Reed continues to lead his out-front trio with pianist Steve Ali and drummer Deduca da Fonseca. He released out-front the Rufus Reed Trio on Motema Records in 2010. Reed recorded with his trio again, adding guests Bobby Watson, Freddie Hendricks, J.D. Allen, and Tonino Horta, releasing Hues of a Different Blue on Motema in 2011. 
hues of a different blue should be considered a sterling definitive exemplar of what an ideal jazz album should be. Fabulous musicianship and service of the music, expansive tunes played with succinctness and restraint and variety. Mark Cressman, Jazz Inside Magazine. Born in February 10th, 1944 in Atlanta, Georgia, Rufus Reed was raised in Sacramento, California, where he played the trumpet through junior high school and high school. Upon graduation from Sacramento High School, he entered the United States Air Force as a trumpet player. During that period, he began becoming seriously interested in the bass. After fulfilling his duties in the military, Rufus had decided that he wanted to pursue a career as a professional bassist. He moved to Seattle, Washington, where he began serious study with James Harnett of the Seattle Symphony. He continued his education at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, where he studied with Warren Benfield and principal bassist Joseph Gustevsky of the Chicago Symphony. He graduated in 1971 with a Bachelor of Music degree as a performance major on the double bass. Rufus Reed truly continues to be the evolving bassist. So uh, just to get started, could you talk to us a little bit about what you've been up to during this lockdown? Ooh. Well, um, you know, as, as a traveling musician or this is what I've done most of my life. Uh, when I'm home, I'm usually home. And, uh, and if I'm home for a period of time, then I, I, I might be asked to play in the city with somebody uh, or, or something like that. So not a whole lot has changed, except it's really long now, you know, <laughs> long, longer than I expected it to be. My wife and I, we, we uh, since she travels a lot with me, so when we we eat out, you know, when you're on the road, you you eat what you can and try to eat well. But uh, so we don't really go out when we come home. Mm -hmm. because we, uh, so that hasn't really changed. Uh, we've been going out just to go to the grocery store and, and, uh, and all that stuff. But what I have been doing, which I'm, I'm kind of happy about is, uh, and I've been able to keep it up, is to have a re uh, uh, some kind of routine. If you don't have a routine, you're screwed. I mean, it, you can really, uh, you can get in, I mean, getting up and putting clothes on as opposed to staying and living it all day in your pajamas, which I guess is, can be easily done since you don't have anything to do or any place to go or anybody to see. Or you can be a couch potato and watch and, and nerd out on all of the television stuff. I watch television when I know I'm ready to go to sleep, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, uh, and I mean, I don't have Netflix or HBO or any of that stuff because we don't, we don't I'm sure we watch movies sometimes. We used to go to movies, but we can't even do that now, you know, so uh, uh, I've been trying to get up and go play the bass at least for an hour and a half or two hours. And uh, 
that I'm really happy about. Uh, and then, of course, I've pulled out the bow and I've been doing a lot of things that I should have been doing or would like. Oh, I'm going to put this on the back burner. I don't have time to really do that now. And, uh, but now I don't have that excuse. So, and so it's been fun. Kind of, uh, it's amazing what happens when you practice. You know? Yeah. You know, you even like what you do. Uh, <laughs> for me, uh, picking up the bow, I mean, just trying to hack my way through the, one of the Bach cello suites or something, uh, or uh, I wrote a piece uh, for a real virtuoso bassist uh, by the name of Diana Gannett, and who's a really good friend. And, but this lady can play a whole note and give you goosebumps, you know. And <laughs> just, uh, so I wrote a piece for her, and because uh, she played it, and of course I'll never ever be able to play it like she. But I also orchestrated uh, for an orchestra, and so I've been trying to practice so I could play it. That's been humorous, but. You know, I, I really feel that uh, I have been able to make some progress. So I, I just take a couple bars at a time, you know, and just, I mean, I don't have any place to go. And, and one of the things that I think we as players know the value of repetition. Yeah. So if we, yes. if we, <laughs> uh, now we have a ton of time and uh, so, and I never really look at the clock so much. So that, that has been good. So I have to admit uh, today, I mean, I, uh, this was a project that I don't know if you've ever heard about it, but there's a bass player named Mark Dresser, who's a really fantastic bass player, lives in California. And uh, years ago, he, he called me and said, uh, we're going to do this uh, Deep Tones for Peace. And so he got 10 bass players here in New York. And then there were 10 bass players in Tel Aviv. And we had a conductor and they had a conductor and we performed six hours. And it was online. It was- Wow. Yeah. Because when I figured out what was doing, I got to the studio and and uh, nobody was there because I got there a little early and it was at Manhattan School of Music. I found the room and I walked in the studio and there's these video cam uh, not, well, cameras and then monitors everywhere. And then I walked in the room and there's nobody there, but hello, Rufus. So I'm looking around and it was uh, another bass player named Bert Tereski who, uh, you know, one of our uh, elder statesmen, heavy-duty uh, player, but he was in Tel Aviv, and then that's when I figured out Tel Aviv, and we began to do things at the same time. So this week, I got an email. They're going to do another one because of all the things that have been going on that we're experiencing, uh, as if the virus wasn't enough. Right. Uh, but we have the protests, which I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe for the first time in the history of our country that something might be uh, 
headed toward changing laws and policies about how people uh, uh, being respectful to everybody, you know. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, election coming up. And so, I mean, we got we got a lot of jive on our plate right now. So we we're having another deep tones for peace sometime in August. So uh, each one of us may end up doing, I just recorded myself playing for about 18 minutes, you know, just, and they'll just put them back to back, you know. And so that was kind of neat because, you know, uh, you don't know who's going to be listening to that. Uh, I mean, people all over the world are going to be listening to it. Um, but it's for a cause of hopefully the our low tones will be uh, uh, sobering uh, for people's thoughts to just chill a little bit, you know. So that I just I just finished, and uh, but I've been trying to, like I say, have a regimen during the day. I would practice in the morning. I would practice before I would shower or do any of that, and then then I would go to the piano maybe and try to write something you know just before we got the shutdown i had uh, a commission piece a chamber piece for clarinet flute and piano that uh, it was supposed to be august 10th so that got canceled haven't heard that one yet uh, the ensemble seemed to like it so i was looking forward to it even bought tickets and all that stuff to go. But hopefully one of these days. I did finish a, a big band chart that uh, that was almost finished, but I had put it on the back burner. So I actually uh, revisited that early on. And that was kind of nice to kind of saturate myself just to, to get into it. As you know, you have to kind of get into a zone to accomplish whatever you are trying to do. So uh, that's a new one, Gina, that you hopefully you'll get a chance to be down one day. And I'm, I'm, I've got a couple of things, uh, but of course, around the house here, there's always something to do. But I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, uh, we're, we lost a lot too many people that we we know, yes. and I personally know, you know, the last time I was in New Orleans was with and playing with Ellis Marcellus as a trio, and that, that was, uh, that was kind of truly sad to, to hear. That. So, but I'm happy that I'm, uh, we got back, my wife and I got back uh, from Germany on March the 8th. Wow. Just and, uh, shut down. Uh, yeah, well, I got invited to, to my music to go to the WDR band uh, in Cologne. And uh, our last concert was on the 6th. And we stayed an extra day and we came home on the 8th. But we found out the band in Frankfurt, I think that's the NDR band, I believe. Uh, they were put on quarantine. I said, ooh, 
we better get out of here. And not really knowing it was really gonna like hit it hard like it really hit. And my son, he can ping my phone, he knew where we were. And he says, will you guys get your behinds home? You know, this. so we've been home ever since then. And um, so far, so good, you know, just trying to, uh, but I am trying to be productive as much as possible with my music. And uh, obviously, as much as we would love to do that, every day cannot be 100%. And even you're lucky if it can be 50%, you know, so uh, being productive, you know, so uh, I'm, I'm fairly happy that I'm able to do. And of course, there's books and things that I would like to read. I keep, keep one in my, when I traveled, I, I'd always, so now I have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. Can the you? same thing kind of happened to me because I read during my commutes, but I don't need to commute anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, so you mentioned a routine being very important, but how else do you stay motivated? Motivated to do what? Just to continue your personal growth. Well, if you're not, that's why I feel the routine is like really imperative mm -hmm. of some sort. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, then all of a sudden your brain starts to like deteriorate a little bit. And then you begin to become a little negative. And then, and then it gets, and then you can dig us. Uh, 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 I think none of us are beyond being, getting depressed or, or any of that. And some people are more susceptible than others. But I think, you know, I've been blessed, to be quite honest with you, uh, of having a, a, my health. I can lose a little weight, but so can a whole lot of folks, but I feel pretty good. Uh, I try to take care of myself. And so I still love what I do. And I think a lot of people don't put value on, they put value on, wrong things or things that are really don't really help you. I'm in a different place than you guys are, for sure. And I can only say that keep the love of the music and, and your, um, what, uh, your knowledge of what the difference between mediocrity and excellence. Uh, if you begin to, if those things get a little fuzzy and when then that that could that could be a, a beginning of you know a, a downward thing so I, I I really feel if you're if, you, if you've um, righteous about what you're doing and and you but we have to learn to how to protect ourselves you know we have to learn how to um, you can't make circumstances make you happy you have to make you happy and you, I mean, everybody's got an excuse for not doing something or being pissed off or whatever. Um, so I don't know. That's a very difficult question to really to, to handle. And yet, uh, I feel that I wake up 
and I and I get up and I got something to do. The moment that you don't have something to, to do or you don't care about it anymore, and maybe that's it, you know. Uh, and then I'm uh, and and I'm not alone. Uh, meaning I do have my companion, my wife is with me. However, um, I think one of the reasons why we've been married as long as we have because we give each other that space. Uh, there was many years that I was traveling a lot. I mean, we're talking about in the 70s when I was traveling with Dexter Gordon. We were gone eight months out of the year, you know, in and, in and out, not eight months. Uh, yeah. But so sh she had her things to do, and um, and so we had a lot of a lot of honeymoons when we got back. You know, if you, you but I've been very fortunate also that uh, when I'm home, I'm home, and we're together, and uh, it's uh, uh, so I'm I'm lucky there. But we've worked hard. I've been. This is a. We've been married fifty years now. You know, and that in itself is rare. I mean, people go past two years and they're ready to get out of there. You know. Uh, so, uh, um, but we've learned not to sabotage each other. Um, and what we do is we do it together. And it's. I couldn't do the things. I certainly couldn't have achieved some of the things that I have achieved without her assistance or her helping me there in some manner, uh, mentally or uh, otherwise. And so I'm I'm really uh, happy about that. But we work at that. That so I guess we all have to work at our ourselves personally to to to. Well, because this is something like you're not alone. I mean, all, all of us are in the world here are having a what the hell is going on? I mean, you don't really know how to deal with. So, uh, but I think we as players, we have something that a lot of people don't have. If they don't have a hobby or they don't have something, if they're not a uh, something that they can do that they love to do. That's why I tell people to say, if you, you know, if you want to be a jazz musician, you, it's not a even think about making, I mean, being, being really wealthy, or making money. Uh, we could have done, uh, we could have done something else, you know, and if you can do something else, you should do something else. And now all of us are having to find something else to do and still do what we do. But I believe this because I remember were you guys in New York during the 9-11? I was. I wasn't. Yeah, well, that was deep. Mm -hmm. And it took New York two or three years, four years, five years to get, get back to moving. Yeah. And I've always said, if you didn't have, if you hadn't developed your own personal clients, people who know you, who, who know your, they know who you are and what you do, and and they've always enjoyed that. Well, they haven't forgot. They won't forget that. 
if you keep keep putting down every time you uh, play or every time that there's a professional thing happening. I mean, you know, and it sounds a little funny to even talk about this right now, but it's, it's really not. I mean, uh, but this time we've got so long, we're losing the entire year. We've, we've basically lost the entire year. And if you're fortunate enough to, to kind of have saved enough or have people to help you month to month or whatever, because the shit is serious now, you know. So uh, uh, I I just have to, uh, I'm, I try to be optimistic, but I, I have to believe that if, if, if you were making some noise with your personality and your expertise or whatever, it will return in some way. But how, when, I have the slightest idea. Uh, and so we, but see, I've, I've always thought about, uh, I, I don't think I would ever go hungry because I know how to make a dollar. I, I can cook, I can pump gas, I can wash dishes. I mean, I've, I've done all that stuff and will do it if I need to do it, if I have to do it. We'll do a lot of things if we have to do it, you know. Um, but now we have to, uh, there's a, a rude awakening for, for all of us about taking care of ourselves, paying ourselves when we do get a something that's paid, that we, we pay ourselves first and then we pay the bill or something else and if you don't do that you're 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 blowing it you know and i'm not preaching i'm just saying that's that's real you know? but it's real it's more real than ever now because the people who are making thousands and thousands of dollars but they live large and they're screwed i mean they're they're really in rough shape you know because they if i i try not to live beyond what i can do and I think that's a big that can be a big problem yeah. so I'm curious because you were talking about uh, traveling could you talk to us about touring and how it's changed since when your career started to I mean maybe not now because it's obvious how now it's changed but all right let me go back when I was with in the 70s with with Dexter Gordon and well I didn't I was with that Jones Mel Lewis band for almost almost three years, two and a half, and I was playing with um, with Thad before he left, and uh, but I never really traveled a, a lot with them. But at the same time, when I was with that band, uh, we were working enough. I didn't have to take any other gigs. That was that was really a surprise, you know. It was a big band, as you know. So, but when I was with Dexter Gordon, we would travel, and I would take my bass, and we would put the bass in the plane, on this in the seat, and that's gone. There's probably right now. There's probably not enough room for me to sit in a seat, much less uh, have a bass too. But ever since, I mean, we're talking uh, traveling. Uh, with the bass and 
during the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of terrorist stuff going on in Germany and all over the, you know, Poland and, and all those, Finland and all those countries that were Czechoslovakia. And all. Man, I mean, they would have uh, Uzis all over the airports and carrying the base on the plane. Where are you going with that? You know, and having to buy a ticket for that. And then eventually I was able to get a base trunk to travel. That presented a lot of, it was nice. I could walk on the airplane with everybody else. Uh, but then of course the overweight and then all, everything began to really escalate even to the point where uh, even right now, uh, before the shutdown, I mean, I had still traveled with my instrument uh, and I had a travel case I can take the neck off my base. So it's a, it was a little easier to be more mobile. And, and, and usually when I went, people paid me enough where I would pay for whatever the charges would be. Uh, but traveling uh, in, for us as Americans really changed after 9-11. There was always security in Europe. Um, always. And we, ha we as an Americans have been spoiled. So when 9-11 with all the security stuff started to really change for us just to go to another city in the United States, the security just was uh, crazy. And uh, we as Americans were very livid they didn't want to deal with that stuff you know i said but it was nothing new to me or those of us who traveled a lot that was it was just part of the stuff um but traveling uh it's 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 harder now because people are a lot more you know suspicious of things happening um uh, but I enjoyed traveling because that's what I did. Um, I enjoyed going to different countries and enjoying and getting the food and, and, and the way of life. Um, um, but it's, it's harder now. I still enjoy it, but it's much more difficult now than ever before. But I'm, I'm not sure what you're asking if, uh, but I do remember, you know, I, I remember uh, when I was with Dexter Gordon, uh, the drummer and I were always had, you know, he was carrying drums at that time too, you know. So, uh, but there was a time in Germany uh, where it was pretty, uh, there was four of us and I had the bass and I had a suitcase and it, every you had to go down and identify your luggage on the on the runway before they even put it on the plane. Then you could get on the plane. And if nobody identified whatever luggage there was, um, it didn't get on a plane. It probably got blown up or something. Uh, I mean, that's how treacherous it, 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 it would get to be. Um, so, uh, but I, you know, it was just part of, part 
kind of the gig. That's what we got paid for. We didn't get paid for playing. You know, we got paid for schlepping the stuff around, you know, dealing with all these jerks in the airports and whatnot. But, um, um, and I don't think that's ever really changed so much even now before, you know, we, we don't really get paid. That's what we get paid for is traveling and all, all the all the above. Um, could you, like, just on that question a little bit, talk about, like, the musical aspect of the touring? Like, what it was like traveling with... Oh, well... Different uh, like that, yeah. This is what I think we all miss, and particularly you guys. We played every day. Mm-hmm. Every day. After a 500-mile bus ride. And you got off and you hit it. I remember real vividly one one uh, one concert. We were in uh, we had this big concert in Yugoslavia, and I don't know if it was some high up prime minister or president or something died, and the whole country just shut down. And it happened to be the pivotal concert pay for that week or two. You know, that's where the big nut was. So we didn't have a payday that week. And so people were, guys in the band were, and it got, um, got a little strange. And back then, we were wearing daishikis with badge on all loose, you know. Um, it's pretty loose. And um, we were in the bus, and everybody's not too happy. Uh, and so we're driving to the gig, and, and, and Mel asked that everybody, uh, instead of because he and Thad were the leaders, instead of saying, we're, we're wearing it's, uh, this daishiki or whatever, we'd we, we do this tonight. But he made a mistake of, what do you think we ought to wear tonight? And, and, and I don't know what happened, but people just came up with all kinds of, of, of Things that weren't too nice. I won't. I won't repeat some of the stuff. And uh, and we still had like a couple hundred miles to go. And everybody just started to fester. Uh, got to the gig. We had to drive. We got. We were late enough. We couldn't go to the hotel first. We had to go right to the venue and go to uh, and play. And everybody, I knew, I said, oh, man, what's going on? What's up with this? But the moment that we played that first downbeat, it was uh, number 17 in the book. Uh, Love Walked In, I think it was. I'm not sure. But all of a sudden, all the animosity, all the anger, all the everything just kind of flew away. The music was so much fun to play. 
and everybody was really pissed. But when that first band got that one section where it started to hit, and every, all of a sudden everybody just like, and man, that concert was killing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and and we were playing, but so there's there was always these ebb and flow things happening, and the the, the when you're playing every day uh, and not practicing, performing every day, that's when your stuff starts to shine. If you've got some stuff to shine, it'll shine then. Yeah. And, and uh, that's what I think is missing today because nobody's really traveling like that anymore. Uh, having to play even when you really don't want to play and you got a fever and you want to lie down, but you got to play can't go home because you're 3,000 miles away, blah, 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 blah. You just got to, uh, unless you're really deathly ill, you hit it. Yeah. And uh, you remember those days, you know, eventually. You just, you'll, you'll say, damn, I, I remember playing with Dexter going to, uh, I don't know, I think we were in Paris. I had strep throat. I had to go to the, I had fever. I couldn't even feel the bass. I was really, I could function, but I, we played the concert. They recorded the concert. But after we got back to the hotel, I said, man, I got to go. I, you got to get me a doctor. So I went and got a doctor and, and they gave me a shot, you know. And I come back to the hotel and they're listening to the playbacks from the, from the concert. Say, man, Rufus, you played your ass off. Yeah, I said, really? You know, so you end up kind of going on automatic pilot when you have to. And that's really the only time you should, you know. So, uh, but that can only happen if you got something in reserve or somewhere in you that's already accumulated, you know. Uh, and this is a... Uh, this is what I really feel is really missing. I mean, just just think, Gina, you know, like in October with the band, uh, we, we had really four really good nights, but the Sunday night jumped. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, hmm. And I, it, it, that happens to everybody. I mean, um, we, we, we love listening to all these recordings uh, with Miles' live stuff or live train or uh, there's nothing like studio stuff. I mean, they're all great, but there's nothing like it, you know. So, um, but the traveling to me, that, that was the part that I loved the most because I could feel, and when you knew you weren't playing well, uh, either you were really sick or you were just uh, uh, just wasn't happening you know and, and as much as we want to you know I always talk about the the fourth night the Thursday let's say you start on a Tuesday Wednesday uh, yeah Monday Tuesday Wednesday 
you start on Monday and you got a whole uh, that Thursday night look out because the shit is going to hit the brick wall, you know, because you 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 first night you you man, second night you say oh bam, and the third night you go yeah I got it I got it. this is going to be a killing. The fourth night you said oh this is mine and you can't even sound like you hadn't even seen your instrument on the the fourth night because you know um, you you just can't do that uh, you can't physically and that's what we try to do every night we try to even outdo whatever the, the good uh, and you you do but uh, you have to learn how to pace oneself yeah. um, and the only do that is if you've got a, a series of things you know, one or two nights, you're just getting warmed up. That's that's what hurts me, and that's what's going to hurt us now. That's what. Uh, that's why I feel that I can try to keep this routine of, so that if I do get a gig. In in the next few months or whenever, and, and that I won't fall apart. After the first tune, you know. Just to have some chops, you know. So you're talking a little bit about how things have changed. Can you talk a little bit about how the mentorship experience has changed in your experience? Uh -huh. Well, I'm really pleased that you guys have called me, but a lot of young people don't talk to the older guys. That's how I learned how to play. I mean, no, don't do that. What do you think? No, 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 don't go like that. Oh, okay. Because if you say something to some of the, I mean, the players of today are, uh, play so well, they can intimidate a lot of people. And unfortunately, we've lost a lot of our elder statements so that uh, you don't have a whole lot of people that you can aspire to work with you know? yeah. um, and as well as uh, you all play if you keep playing with just the people who just play with this almost the same kind of experience uh, everything really Sounds that doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, I mean, for me, uh, my first boss was Eddie Harris, and he was at least—I don't know exactly—but I think he was at least ten, twelve years older than I, maybe fifteen, but I don't think so. But ten years is a lot when you think about this accumulating uh, experiences. Um, like, for instance, Eddie Gomez and myself are about the same age. Maybe he's a little older, maybe uh, a year. He was Eddie Gomez when he was 18. Mm -hmm. I didn't start playing the bass until I was 18. Wow. Yes. He was recording with Bill Evans. I mean, he was he was graduated from Juilliard playing the, with the. I mean, 
So to me, he almost had compressed almost 20 years of experience uh, over me. So it has nothing to do with your age. It's just how long you've been able to, to, to be on your instrument, you know? But you can't separate that experience. I mean, you can't replace it. I mean, to me, uh, Eddie Harris taught us how to record. I said, no, 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 no. They don't want me to use you guys. He was talking about Atlantic Records. He says, they don't want me to use you guys. Uh, but uh, he was selling enough records that he fought for us. But he said, now listen, don't mess up now because I'll have to pull you out the mix. Yeah. This, this is business now. But he did fight for us. So he said, so I said, mm, I don't want to be pulled out the mix. I don't want to. Because, um, and so I'm thankful to him for being really, uh, you know, real candid about, okay, so you can play, but you're going to have to really play. Uh, and, and he taught us about the business. Uh, he taught me uh, uh, how to go into studio. I mean, we were working enough six nights a week that we played everything. We played everything we were going to put on the record. Every set. We had three sets a night. We played for, for a month. We played every tune, every set. So when we walked in the studio, it was just another game. Yeah. It was, and we were playing giant steps and all that kind of stuff. And, and of course, the, when he when he told us that's what we were going to play, everybody said, "Oh, oh giant steps is cold train." Well, he said, "Ah." So we played it as a waltz. We played it giant steps as a ballad. We played it as a real uh, swing and tempo, just so that we can just get to hear it and just let it. It was what it was. And we ended up playing the samba faster than the way Train recorded it. I mean, Eddie Harris was serious, if you want to check check him out. But uh, he knew every bit about how long tunes were going to be and how many choruses. And so there was no, no surprises in the studio because he says, they gave me a budget. And if I go over the budget, I got to go into my pocket which means I'm going into your pocket. And I said, uh-oh, you know. So, I mean, he's he's teaching us all these things. And then the, we're a family on the road. We had to look out for each other's luggage when we traveled. We had to learn everybody's luggage. So when we, we would look out for each other, literally, yeah. you know, uh, because we spent more time on the road than we did in, at home with our own family. So, I mean, you can't learn that stuff on your own if, 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 unless you're just fortunate enough to, and I think you learn things when you didn't really expect to learn them, you know. Um, but I feel very fortunate that I had that apprenticeship with Eddie, Dexter Gordon, Stan Getz. I had a, a, a lot of experience with saxophone players particularly 
but I did play with J.J. Johnson for almost nine years, you know, and that was that was pretty special. Uh, so, uh, but Jay had to learn how to come back and get his chops back up to perform. He was very cognizant. And I learned a lot from him about, he used to get very angry with some of his fellow constituents that were his age or a little older that for some reason weren't playing at the level that he thought they they used to be playing. And he was very, very concerned about how you heard him. And if he wasn't able to play what he felt good about, he didn't want you to hear that. So he he was very adamant and says, I don't I, I only want people to hear me the way that I want them to hear. So if my chops are I I don't have my chops anymore because he stopped playing. We, I, we played at the Blue Note. We probably had every trombone player in New York, including Joe Alessi and a whole bunch of people, you know, uh, who had a lot of respect for Jay. And he said, this is going to be my last concert. And when we made, I don't know if you've ever heard that brass uh, recording of, of his uh, he had one more recording to do, but he told his manager uh, when we played at the Blue Note that that, well, actually, our last concert was out here in New Jersey at William Patterson College. He said, that's going to be my last concert, public concert. He had an obligation to do two records. There's still a, a recording in the can that has never been released. Wow. I don't know if it ever... I'm sad too because he recorded one of my tunes. <laughs> but that's pretty deep, you know, that he didn't really want you to hear him less than what he wanted to hear. And uh and and it wasn't about the money. He was because he was he was a very uh before his first wife I mean, when he went out to L.A. and did all the television and film stuff, um, she's the one that actually, you know, really took care of him and took care of all the business and the whole bit. So, uh, and we were in Japan when she had her stroke, and then that was that was the beginning of the end, so to speak. Uh, uh, and it took about three years before he kind of got it together enough to get back again. But he was very special. But he had that, he had a lot of depth and he, he knew what he wanted. The first rehearsal I, I played with him was so rewarding. I didn't have to do the gig. I mean, that's the way I was feeling. The rehearsal was so gratifying. Uh, and, you know, we have uh, 
we usually have our heroes and we keep them on a pedestal. And then if we meet them, sometimes they, we, we have to, they, they end up being jerks or not the people that we thought. When I got with Jay, I had to, I had to go get a ladder because his, his stuff just was amazing. Incredible, uh, consistent, respectful human being and so I said hey that's how I want to be so this this is this is what you you know I've had uh, been very blessed with the people that I have worked for that have taught me how to treat you and and I've had very few people that I mean they've taught me what not to do as well so you learn, you learn what works, what doesn't work, what works every time. And uh, that's, uh, well, that's beyond the plane because your playing is assumed that you're going to play your ass off anyway. If you're there, that's yeah. what people assume. <laughs> so I knew you could play because you were recommended to me, lady, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> Yeah. And you threw down the first night, so or the re rehearsal. I said, "Oh, okay, that's all I need to know." <laughs> I appreciate you. Um, I have a question on one of the things that you were talking about earlier. You said that you started playing when you were, you said eighteen, correct? The bass. The bass. You started playing the bass when you were eighteen. Um, and so the name of this uh, interview series is called 8 VB Bop. And we're both bass trombonists. So mm -hmm. naturally, a lot of bass trombonists who are just starting to get interested in jazz or just starting to feel like the courage to actually think about jazz are feeling like they're starting late and don't know where <laughs> to go and where to start and how to stay motivated or how to where to even begin. Could you talk to us a little bit about the fact that you started quote unquote late? Yeah, well it's it's late when you when you think about people like uh, like Freddie Hubbard's out there like he's eighteen and picking up the trumpet and, and, and amazing. Mm -hmm. Or Benny Golson or Coltrane when they were in high school they were killing. You know. They talk about train being pretty special in high school. You could just disappear. But I used to be a trumpet player. That was my first instrument. Well, mellophone or French <laughs> horn or something because the trumpets were given away. But I always had an affinity for the bass. I didn't know that for a while, but when I was in a group and I would, we would have an intermission after rehearsals and I would go over to the bass and just touch the strings and stuff. And I really think that was my infatuation where it began. But I was in the Air Force Band as a trumpet player. Uh, that was my career. Um, I was not a very good trumpet player. I was a 
much better trumpet player after I got out of the military. But that was just uh, here, the, here again, that consistency. I ended up having to get better. But the bass kind of took over. But I still had to keep my chops up on the trumpet because that was my job, so to speak. But I, I, I never really thought about it so much. Uh, I just uh, started teaching myself the bass, um, and and when I found out, I told you about Eddie Gomez. When I found out he and I were close to the age, and I said, "Oh man, I was really late," you know. Um, but I've known people who started later than that, you know, into their 20s. It's really about your work ethic of how you, how bad do you want it? I didn't think about being, making it difficult, uh, oh man, this is gonna be hard. Uh, I never thought about that. It just never entered my mind about, it's just something I wanted to do and, and then when I had good ears. My ears saved me a lot. My ears got me into certain musical settings that I probably shouldn't have been in, but my ears got me in there. And so people assumed I knew certain things because somehow I made them believe I could do certain things. And then someone asked me a question about, oh, I really love that tune you played. Can you write down the changes of that for me? And I said, sure, man. I, uh, and I was embarrassed. I said, oh, that's got to stop. So I really started to start paying more attention to the piano. Because nobody right now, when you go to school, people say, well, you know, you got to get, you don't have to be a piano player, but you do have to get some piano skills and blah 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 blah. I didn't know that until it was late, but not too late now, because now I'm much friendlier with the piano. I'm not a pianist, but I, um, so everything came late to me, whatever that means but evidently not late enough, you know? So you end up making it work for you the best way you possibly can. And I began to, okay, nobody can tell you how much you need to practice. Nobody should have to tell you to practice. You listen, if you, uh, listen to recordings and of course I did all the time because I my very first recording my I was 15 that I know my brother gave me of Miles Davis I knew who I saw Louis Armstrong play when I was in high school uh, and man that was and as a trumpet player man that was something I mean it was uh, it was pretty deep and I got a chance to shake his hand. Uh, uh, and then I heard, uh, we used to sneak over the, uh, uh, 
I, I used to live in Sacramento. I was in school in Sacramento, California. So we used to sneak into the hotel where Stan Kenton's big band was playing. And we snuck in. I didn't even, the whole saxophone section sounded louder than our entire band with the drums and everything. But I was, I mean, it was amazing sound. And these trumpet players were, you know, uh, uh, I never heard, but you hear, wow. And then I heard Cannibal Adley's group after I got back out of the service and I saw Sam Jones. I, but when I was in Japan, I saw Ray Brown live. I had a lot of records, but when you see it live, phew. So that gave me the incentive, that's what I want to do. So you work harder. I mean, it's not work to me. I mean, it's just what I, and then you hear and say, man, I want to be over there. I, I want to be able to play like that. I want to be able to play like that, you know, yeah. just play like that. So then you try to play like that. Ray Brown, I said, oh man. Man. And then eventually you realize you can't play like that. But you've got a direction. You've got a place. I want to be in that that zone some kind of way. And, and, hey. um, and I guess I didn't know, I never thought about how difficult it might be because I don't think that gets in the way when you start assessing every little thing. And, and that can that can be be very detrimental. But you still have to start practicing, and then you say, "Okay, oh, I can do that." Oh, boy! I was over there, and I said. Man, I can't, I don't know what the hell they're doing over there. So you end up trying to figure out what they're doing. I mean, that to me, that's common sense. But, uh, uh, and you do what you have to do to get to wherever you want to be, I guess. I uh, So for me, uh, I was... I guess if you look at a piece of paper and everything, and I'm, I started late, I guess. But I'm, I'm not, I wasn't alone. And I know people who started later than I am who are relatively, uh, or if not more successful in the business. It's just like funny now, people are reading, talking about, because kids in high school, oh man, they're gonna lose a whole year. Uh, they're falling back. What do you mean? You mean one year is going to make somebody dumb if they're not dumb? They just have to work at it a little bit more. But everybody wants to put everybody in the same place. Everybody isn't in the same place and never will be in the same place. Mm -hmm. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, uh, if, if uh, but if if they get the advantages of having the uh, everything, everybody has the same options to get better, 
then, okay, then you begin to see who's got something natural, who's trying to show off, who's really bullshitting, and it, it, it comes up quick, it comes up very quick. So, and people saw that I wanted it, and they could see that I, oh man, you've got a good time feeling. Some of those notes are a little funny, but the time feels good. So you just clean up the notes a little bit, and before you know it, oh. So, and that's the way I, that's the way I look at it. Mm. You mentioned something um, about listening. And the listening experience nowadays has changed a lot because everybody's streaming, everybody's on YouTube. What do you think, if anything, is either missing or we're gaining from that experience? Well, I think the biggest thing is missing. Most people listen by themselves. I learned how to listen with a group of people. In fact, if we practice together, I think, you know, I think it's more fun to have listened with another person or two more people listening to something that you all want to hear. Yeah. Hmm. And then you can start, did you hear that? No, well, play it again. Because you can't hear everything. And to me, I think that's what's missing now. And we have, <laughs> with these iPhones and stuff, you might have a, a million songs that you can Nobody knows nothing. They don't know titles. They don't know who wrote it. They don't know who played on it. They don't even know who, who's, who's that person playing your instrument. Ah, I don't know. And we, we uh, that to me, I think it's huge. Uh, I, I, I think people listen by themselves with headphones. And, um, it's become, uh, uh, to me, it's out of hand. I, the attention span, uh, I think, is uh, shortened a, a, a great deal. I cannot listen, uh, to be honest with you right now, if I really want to hear it, particularly now that I'm writing a lot of music now, I listen to combinations of instruments and oh wow never thought about that or if i started uh, really looking at some scores and things so i would scores of some classical things or or some of thad's music or some of brookmeyer's music or jim mcneely's music or i need to hear so I sit down and I can't, I, I can't go do the dishes. I, I can't have the TV on. Um, I can't look at my phone. Yeah. Uh, uh, I really, and a lot of people, uh, 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 and I have to say a lot of people probably your age and particularly even younger than you guys are really don't know what it is to really listen to something. I mean, to sit down and just really zone in on something, you know. 
Um, I mean, I go around and I do some residencies at some high schools, mainly colleges and universities. And um, there's, there's a real high percentage of players that really don't listen to and when they play in their group, they don't hear things that are going on in the group because they haven't learned how to really hear. There's a difference, you know. Um, so to me, that's if you could somehow, okay, choose five compositions or, or five albums or five tunes or from different sources and you all you all pitch in and say let's listen to this and let's listen to that and let's listen to this okay let's have an evening and turn the turn turn the lights down a little bit and turn the volume up and really and don't talk take some notes if you want to you know so you have something to discuss but see, we used to play records, you know, these black things. <laughs> we still have vinyl now. There's a lot of people. I just, my last two albums are on vinyl. And it's going to audiophile people, and they listen. I attribute, like, listening to records like smoking a pipe. You have to, you have to mess with it. You have to clean it, make sure that it's, that it's breathing correctly so that it can it can last a, a half hour, you know. That means you have to mess with it. You have to, uh, and like an album, you have to take it out, clean it, and, and you don't have to have be an audiophile. And yet, now they're making more vinyl now than. It, have been in a long time because there's a lot of people who are really, but I wish, I, I but I like to listen, I mean, to me, uh, to be able to get a glass of wine or something and sit and really, really listen to it. Um, and that, that means you have to take the time to do that. And a lot of people don't know, I don't have time to do that. I have this, I have this. We have all kinds of time now, you know. So, but to me, you ask the question, the biggest is don't listen by yourself. I think you really need, if you could actually have a listening session, like at least three or four people, you can have a lot of fun. I mean, I mean, a, a lot of fun talking uh, about it. And what we used to do would be a group that we enjoyed playing with each other and so we would listen to a couple of albums because we would wait for the new Miles record or the new Bill Evans record or the new Chick Corea record or the new um, uh, Cannonball record and then because they taught us what to play they taught us what tunes to play oh damn that's a hard one you know um, but then then we would practice as a band right after we've had like maybe a couple of hours of really serious listening. And then the band would actually start sounding even better mm -hmm. because you begin to be a little more critical. You want to 
want to sound like the guys that just made that record, you know. But see, we forgot that those guys who made that record, they were playing six nights a week for months on end. And maybe they got to the studio and read the tunes down once and recorded it. Boom. Can't beat that. I'm curious because you're talking about listening in regards to composition. So you talked about chamber groups, obviously you play in big bands and you just compose a lot. Can you talk to us about your compositional process and your inspirations? Uh, process. <laughs> uh, I don't have a, I don't have a routine. I love the process, mm -hmm. the act of. I've never studied composition formally. I buy books and ask questions, and stuff like that. Uh, but I've had people who really, who I had a lot of respect for, come up to me and say, hey, why don't you uh, check this book out? Or uh, have you heard this? Now, they don't know if I'm going to, uh, people can give you a lot of stuff, but if you don't jump on it. <laughs> so um, I've had a lot of great encouragement from people that, um, how did you do that? I don't know. That I've had a lot of stuff in my head and I'm just learning. I'm, it's, Actively now, I can say, in 20 years, you know, of, uh, since I was in the BMI Composers Workshop, uh, which was in 2000. And, man, it, it was like learning how to get it out of, uh, out of my, uh, I didn't, I didn't have any techniques. I didn't have. Um, um, but I was learning uh, to figure out what retrograde, what is that? Uh, 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 what do you mean? Uh, well, write what you want to write. Well, what do you mean, what do I want to write? Maybe you write for movies, television, bar mitzvahs, Italian weddings, circus. Etc. But you don't none of none of that stuff. Just write what you want to write. What? <laughs> so it took me a whole year to really figure out what I wanted. But then I began to realize there there were some techniques uh, or, or there were things uh, uh, like Brookmeyer, for instance, always thought about cells, uh, two-note, three-note cells. Oh, okay. That's kind of, that. I could relate to that a little bit. And the whole workshop was about learning how to just let it, watch it grow. 
try things just watch it kind of and then uh then i had another friend who told me about the schillinger uh oh I wasn't really that good at math anyway, so I was, you know, I mean, but I understood that, I was okay. And then, like, J.J., he loved Schomburg, you know, he he really, and he loved Mahler, you know, uh, the heavy brass, and the, uh, but Schomburg, and then people told me, yeah, check out the tone rolls and stuff. I said, was that? Um, so I did, and then I got another book by Vincent Persichetti, and he talked about the tone rolls. But you don't have to do it all. Do something else. Half of this, half of that, half of that, quarter of this. But you can do that. So, so I, so I began to uh, accumulate. Um, I could write a little song, like like a song form, and and that was. And then I realized when we have all these great songs. Wow, there's, that's a serious craft right there. Loved Wayne Shorter. He would have us this even a little melody and he said, Damn, you don't even need any chords. It's just one of those wow, how do you do that? So I I've just been inquisitive of just taking things uh and but my biggest issue was I because I was never really uh, given exercises to do. I had to kind of create my own little exercises. I had to figure out something, but I I realized that my I had to get my ears out of the equation, particularly at the outset, because I knew what a hip chord sounded like, and then you want to write another hip chord right next to the hip chord. So you got two hip chords and then you're trying to get a third hip chord. And then before you know it, you've hit a brick wall because you, you've you already trying to make it hip. Mm -hmm. So I had to get my ears out of the way and then they told me, said, well, you know, this tone roll stuff, that'll get you, get you out of the way and mess with it and and then Jim McNeely told me, he said, well, you know, you can, you write that thing. And then if you like, feel like changing it, change it. It's yours. You can do that. I mean, you know, I, um, so then I started listening uh, after a, a, a bit of time because to, to get a, tone row to really be something that's has a nice shape to it it's not that easy 
and and do do the rules that they say no thirds and no sixths and no, uh, etc. I said, wow, that's wow, that's kind of restricting. You know? <laughs> But then I started reading a lot, and then of course Schomburg thought Debussy and 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 Ravel they were wimps, you know. And it's kind of funny, you know, in a sense, because if I when I when I first heard the Ravel's string quartet, he only wrote one, and I said, and that was over a hundred and twenty years ago. I could I wish I could write like that now. <laughs> it still sounds great today. And then I listened to, and when we, we were talking about that, we used to play some of the same charts every night. And I couldn't wait to that. When Mel Lewis went to the Chinese symbol at about three quarters of, oh man, it was exciting every time that's the power of the music that if it's really if uh, if it's really strong it will be strong and so my biggest uh, David Baker was very encouraging to me and he says well don't try to write a great piece whatever that means he's just learn how to write a solid piece let someone else think it's great. But if you study enough, you know what something is solid. Is, it, is the voicing, is it, does it have a sound? Does it, uh, and I'm learning, that's really not that easy to do. And I mean, you can write a lot of stuff, but you really can't really. Uh, and so it's a, it's a new day for me every time I sit down to try to Put something together. It really is, and to me, that's the exciting part about composition. Um, and then when you come up with something, and then somebody else plays it, and, and they say, "Whoa, what? Oh, that's wow!" I had probably the one one of the best compliments one could get. Uh, Dan Morgenstern. And Lee Conan's and Slide Hampton were the judges for the composition commission for the BMI the first year that I got it. And Dan Morgenstern says, "Man, your your piece was the only one I really wanted to hear again." Wow. That's why we play our instruments. We want somebody to hire us again. You want to play so well that people remember they they need that. They need your sound. I need, you know. And then for him to say that to me, because he'd been listening to a whole ton of music. Uh, he probably, before I was even born, you know. Just to, and then uh, you'll appreciate this. I was... Uh, I applied for the Guggenheim in 2008, and I got it. Unbeknownst to me at that time, Slide Hampton was one of the panelists. So I saw him 
uh, two or three years later, or maybe it was a couple years later, and he looked at me and he says, because Slide didn't talk much. And he looked me straight in the eye. He says, you're serious, aren't you? Because he heard the very first. <laughs> but we're talking about years, a few years later now, you know. And I, I went home and I put a, a star on the calendar and said, because Sly didn't, if he didn't have something really good to say, he didn't say anything about anybody. If you couldn't play, he didn't talk to you. And uh, uh, he heard me play with J.J. Johnson. And he said something really nice. But but the writing, that's a whole nother, that's another uh, set of uh, people. And I didn't realize uh, like a private club. <laughs> so if you get respected, I mean, and I feel really, really good about the mere fact that I was invited to play my music with the WDR band this year, you know, and so, um, and I had Dennis McCrell conduct, so I didn't have to do any of the play. But, uh, that was very special, and uh, uh, quite an experience. Uh, but it was also heartwarming that they, because they don't really just let anybody come play in that band. You know, it's a serious band. All all three of those bands in Germany are pretty serious. You know, but uh, so <laughs> talking about a process. I don't have a process. Mm -hmm. I love the process, but I don't have a routine. I do, but I have a sketchbook. Oh, I didn't tell you about that because, uh, do you know the name Lou Hall Richard Abrams? <laughs> He's a pianist. He's the founder of the AACM, you know, the art, art Ensemble, Chicago Art Ensemble came out of that. But he and I used to play in Eddie Harris's band years ago. He was from Chicago, fantastic musician. He could play Scott Joplin, do all kinds of stuff. He could play Body and Soul. He could play Bebop. I mean, he, because in Chicago, you didn't work if you couldn't play. So, but when he wrote his own music, it would go over there somewhere. I mean, his music was different. And uh, so he turned me on to Bartok. He said, why don't you check this out? And he said, don't stop listening. Listen to everything. Even the stuff you don't like, just listen to it. You might like it, you know. And uh, he was uh, he was uh, very 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 special to me in, in a lot of ways um, and very encouraging. 
and so I took him the music when I did the uh, got my first commission from BMI to his house, and he listened. He said, "Man, this is really great." He says, uh, "You got a sketchbook?" I said, "Huh?" No, you got it. You know, artists they have all kinds of sketches, and they do all. You know, they might just a little napkin and they start writing something a little light. I said, uh, okay, uh, I'll give me one. And so uh, I don't think I have one here uh, right now, but he took me over. I was in, went to his house and he took me over to his big, he had a, a wall of, of filing cabinets and he had three Three of them, I mean, they were like huge. And he opened one drawer and it was like these with the spiral with the wire at the top so you could grab it. And it, it, he had at least 50 of them that were right in that one drawer. And he just pulled it out and then he showed me page after page. And, and they were just little ideas that he would write down and and the book was full of little little ideas page after page he says well when i get a commission or somebody wants me to write something i i, I looked through some of my books and said well hmm, this might fit this idea uh, you can do that wow so I ended up, now I have me a little stack of books. Um, so we, I just learn from the people who, if they give me a, uh, give me a minute and give me something I, no one ever said to me before. And then McNeely says, uh, you ever heard of Messian? I said, Messi who? <laughs> Messian. No, then he, he said, check this out. Taranga Langa, Taranga Lingara. I can't even pronounce it. It's, uh, and then I, I, I went and bought, I went and bought the CD. And I listened to it, and I said, I'm in my car driving down the New Jersey Turnpike, 70 miles an hour, and I have this CD on, and it got really intense. I either would have had to pull over or turn it off because it got so intense. I said, whoa. <laughs> Then the, then the orchestra, the French orchestra uh, from Paris came to the Carnegie Hall and I went to the concert. I said, man, who is this guy? And I, that, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Man, now this is the book about Right. Yeah.
But when I heard that piece, whoa. So, I mean, I'm just, I'm just getting information from everywhere. Yeah. I'm not, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, but all this music sounds great to me. So I, if I can, and if you're going to steal, steal from the best. But the thing is now I'm trying to, uh, Brookmeyer was the one that really uh, <laughs> messed me up. He, uh, he looked at one of my scores, which I didn't want to show him. And I had done some workshops with him uh, uh, as, a, as a bass component. And uh, I enjoyed playing with him a lot. And we, we had fun together. And <laughs> uh, I had won the commission. And so Jim McNeely was there also. He said, I want, I want, I want uh, Bob to look at your score. And I said, oh, man, I want to look at I don't want Bob to look at my score. Because Bob could be a real prick. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, dear. Uh, uh, I mean, he he was really sometimes not real nice to certain people. Uh, um, but anyway, he did. So he looks at my score. I said, do you want to look at this? He said, no, I just want to listen to it first. So he listened to it. Then he looked at, listened to it again, but he would score, and then he would, he would go like, hmm. had a pencil, and then, uh, hmm, turn the page. So I'm wondering because he's listening. A head comes. So, so at anyway, at the end of the, uh, he he looked. He said, "Wow, there's another side of you I didn't know existed." Now that, man, that felt good coming from him. But he says, uh, why did you do this? I said, what are you talking about? And I looked at it, and it was a trombone thing that I had written. It That reminded me of, of Thad, uh, one of Thad-isms, you know, with the trombone and the voicing or something. I said, oh, that's kind of kind of like a Thad Jones. He said, I know. Why did you do it? Huh? You can figure another way to do it. Oh. So now when I try to write something and it begins to remind me that quickly of something that I might know, I leave it alone and try and work real hard not to uh, not to do it. What would be come to me quickly, yeah. um, and it's very hard. There's nothing hardly new, period, ever. <laughs> you know, so. Uh, but I think if you, that's the process. I like, wow, wow. I know this works, but 
first thing somebody's going to say, man, that sounds just like that, or that sounds like Duke Ellington, that sounds just like blah, blah, blah. No. Get away from that. Go somewhere. So to me, that's the hard part. That's the challenge to, to really uh, try to come up with something that is a... a it's, because like I said, there's nothing really new out here all these years. I heard something the other day. Uh, Christian McBride was listening to uh, the tune called Jessica's Day. Do you know that tune? It's a Quincy Jones tune mm. that he wrote. And Count Basie's band recorded it. It's kind of a hit. But supposedly this was one of the early days this was before Quincy Jones, when he when he was a trumpet player and had a big band, you know. This was long before Michael Jackson or any of the Hollywood stuff. Boy, the voicings and the creativity and all the the, the rhythmic surprises and harmonic surprises. Wow. Because when we think of Quincy Jones, oh yeah, he's he's gotten real pop because he's playing all these pop stuff and but he he's rough and has been for a long time and everybody has to start somewhere you know uh, um, and uh, but and then David Baker says listen don't 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 try to write something great just write a solid piece of music and and it'll hold up, you know. And uh, so that's kind of what I tried to do to get it to sound. Learning the registers that actually the sweet spots of of every horn, uh, where they they sound. And of course, I'm still learning. You know, we all are. Um, but I love it. This is something for me that uh, um, it's changed the way I play the bass a little bit too. So I'm curious because you have, you know, compositionally have written for so many different types of ensembles. Which would you say best represents your compositional voice? <laughs> I don't. I don't know if that's something I could. So I. I. I really have. I enjoy the uh, the large ensemble, uh, especially when I started writing and adding French horn. But I, there's still a lot of things that I haven't done. I haven't written for a string quartet. I've never written for a saxophone quintet or ensemble. I, I would. I remember listening to the world of trombones with slides. It was like, oh man, it's like two two quartets or three quartets or whatever. You know, it was pretty amazing. Uh, I, I did. Either of you hear that? Uh, Michael Dees wrote something. I don't know how many trombones. Yes, the Black Lives Matter. Uh, yes. Uh, that was, I mean, he's he's pretty special too, you know. So, uh, but harmonically, he's very special as well. Um, 
So that was kind of neat. But I, and uh, I, I'd like to do a uh, string quartet. They say you haven't really composed anything until you do that, you know, because you only have four voices. And the, this last thing I did with the piano and flute and clarinet, that was challenging because there was no bass. And the challenging part for me was the piano part. Uh, to make it, and these were virtuoso players, so I wanted them to look at it and, and not go, what is this little jump, you know? And, um, but they liked it. It was different, you know, for them. Um, to answer your question, I'm not sure. Uh, I think my favorite is the one that I'm working on. Mm, I like that. <laughs> Could you talk to us about like who your biggest influences are? You've named a few like uh, for playing and then for composition, but could you tell us like just addressing that specifically? People who have inspired me, you mean? Or yes. Well, the person who I really feel, because uh, Eddie Harris was probably the first person that who really, uh, I feel very fortunate to have him first. Uh, professional band. And he was probably the first person to, who really uh, taught me a lot. Not just how to play, but about life, about being in a family, how to take care of the band. He taught me how to, uh, um, he would pay us. He says, I, I, I'll pay you on Friday. And every Friday, he paid what he said he would pay me. I didn't think about that so much until the person who said they'd pay me and then they didn't pay me, you know. He always paid me. And he says, all I need you to do is just be on time and be able to play. That was an operative word at that time, being able to play, because cats were stretching out, smoking pot, drinking more than they should, and couldn't play, because he could play. He could play fast in the wind, and if you couldn't play, and if you missed a gig because you were doing something else, he said, that's it. But he paid me, and he didn't have his name on the check. It was Wardo Enterprises. What was that? That was his business check. That was the band account. Then he published his own books and stuff. And that was another name. And then, of course, he and his wife had their own personal. Wow. Business-wise, uh, we would record. He's the one that actually uh, told me to write my own book, my bass book because I was complaining that I had sold Ray Brown's book to a bunch of kids. And he said, well, why don't you write your own book? 
what are you talking about? So he said, but you have to do two things. You have to finish the book because most people don't finish what they start. And then he said, I want you to own it. Little did I know how profound that was then, as I do now. We still own it. That was, that was our first child, my book. Um, then, the about the integrity, he uh, he said, well, why don't you guys make up, because we, we played a lot of funk stuff. We played bebop, we played ballads, we played out. I mean, when we played avant-garde, whatever you want to call it. And so he would, um, he said, Rufus, make up a bass line. You know, just something funky. Because I played electric bass in the double bass. And he said, uh, Ron, put it, put some chords to it on the guitar. And Muhal put this, and Muhal was playing the piano. And then Billy put a drum beat to that. And now I'll put a melody over. Little did we know at that time, he put all our names on the copyright. Mm. And to this day, I get a little royalty check every nine months or something like that. It's not a whole lot, but it's a, it, for, for 50 years, I've been getting a little check. Wow. And then think about that. He didn't have to say squat to us. So he taught me a lot about the music, the music business, being really righteous and the integrity and being consistent. So when I tell people that the gig is this and it pays this, and I usually pay them before we play, I used to come up playing with guys and we'd play all weekend and then wait till four o'clock in the morning and have to wait until they count all the money before they give us the money. And uh, oh, that's some old school bullshit, you know. And the place would be packed all weekend. And they know they have to pay the money. So it doesn't make sense. So he just taught me about things that you really should do if you're going to be successful in heaven, then there's a way to do it. So to me, he was very essential in my career and still is as far as I'm concerned. Um, JJ, I told you about him. And Dexter was wonderful too. I mean, uh, uh, I, I left the band after a while because, uh, you know, uh, I just got tired of, of people complaining to me because we were late getting somewhere or whatever. And, uh, I just had enough. Um, but I've been very fortunate in my, my, my career to people who have not you know, haven't messed over me in, in any kind of way. Um, and Eddie would also tell us, he says, well, you know, when you travel a lot, you should keep enough money in your pocket so something goes down funky. You can always get your ass home. 
So, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's a, not, you know, but a lot of people don't, couldn't go home if they like to pay. They don't have enough money or haven't saved enough or just um, so he taught he's he's taught us a, a, a whole lot taught me a, a great deal uh, and I'm I still reap the benefits of, of all these things um, um, I was with Nancy Wilson for about five years and uh, that too was very interesting during the time of playing with Eddie Harris with the playing in the clubs and then I would be playing concert halls with her with orchestras and stuff and have tuxedo and the whole bit you know and and that that was wow because I could read I could follow the conductor I could I was always on time about all these things that we talk about because once you're there you're already assumed to be able to play see so there's so many of there's such great incredible musicians out here and you guys know a bunch of them too that I don't know but they don't have much else in their favor to keep them working because they they don't have any business we this is a business if we're going to if we're going to play as as a as our livelihood there's a whole lot there's so I love music, period. But the music business really kind of sucks if you don't really pay attention to it. So you have to really uh, get that together. And I and I and I kind of think now we're in check. Uh, all of us in check right now with the with the what's going on in our lives right now, and we have to either get our shit together or get off the pot, you know, uh, uh, because it. Um, nobody has time for anything less, you know. Uh, um, but I'm still optimistic. I'm, I'd have to be because I love the music so much, and there's still, I still haven't heard all the really good stuff yet. Mm -hmm. you know, so that's that's what keeps me going, you know. And then meeting people like you who are really conscientious about keeping together. I mean, I'm serious, you know, I'm not patronizing anybody. I, I want people to, I work for what I have gotten. It's not luck. It's not luck. People say, man, you're really lucky. No, it's not luck. I've worked hard to keep what I have. And if you don't feel like it's worth keeping, then that's what's up. Mm. So as we're sort of wrapping up, are there any, any final suggestions that you have for young musicians right now who are sort of on the up and up? Well, like I said, uh, just really check where you think you want to be and where you are and how far away are you from where you want to be and and how bad do you really want it? I mean, how uh, there's a price for everything, people. And some people, you know, uh, 
um, want their pie and eat it too. And maybe I can probably now in my life, I can have my pie and eat it too. But when you're coming up, I don't think you have the, uh, the audacity to even think like that. Just learn to play your ass off every time so there's some consistency in your, when people hear you, it's always as good, if not better, than the last time they remember you. Because what else is there? Whatever you do, you have to leave some kind of essence. It can either be funky or it can be like, I gotta have that. And are you accepting students? And if somebody wants to get in contact with you to either get in contact for lessons or to buy records or to buy your book, where would they go? Uh, you can go to my website at rufusreed.com and there's a bunch of music. My, some of my compositions, you can download lead sheets and it's free. Uh, there are, you can buy some charts from there and I have some CDs as well. There's a discography there as well that you can check out um, in my book and DVD. Um, uh, my, my email is rufus at rufusreed.com. Um, I, I haven't been doing any online uh, lessons. I've done one. I'm, I wasn't too sure about that. I do some residencies where I've actually, I'm talking to a bunch of bass players as opposed to a one-on-one, -on -one, which uh, I have done. Uh, that's one thing that I'm, haven't really done much of and I'm not, I think I can do it, but I'm, 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 I'm I really like to have hands-on in-person. Uh, um, I think this Zoom platform, and there's a couple others where the, the I can get a, I have an interface now uh, that I can play, that I can really, because the bass really doesn't sound good through the computer all by itself, you know, it, especially low end, it just starts to fall off. I would imagine the trombone too, but, so I do have an interface uh, that kind of helps the sound uh, uh, work better, um, which could help. Uh, I've done master classes uh, because I was hired to do some things at Arizona, Arizona State University where I would go out there for the last couple of times since we got shut down, I would talk to about six or eight bass players once or then I would work with an uh, ensemble question and answer kind of situation or something like this where it was just an interview uh, kind of situation. I'm not sure. I haven't got comfortable to say I'll, I'll do private lessons, but we can talk for sure. Awesome. Awesome.
Thank you so much for your time. We really thank appreciate you. you. Yeah, well, yes. thank you. And uh, uh, pleasure to meet you, sir. And uh, pleasure to meet you, too. Gina Bonal Yeah. <laughs> it's good to talk to, to you I, again. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. did, and you did it perfectly. That is yeah, exactly that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> thank <laughs> but you. I appreciate you giving me a call. Uh, uh, and uh, it was wonderful talking to you. So thank you so much. It really was. Right. Thank you. So you guys be well. Hopefully we'll be able to see each other and, 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 and get a real hug. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you.